Lord, we come to you today with hearts that long to turn to you. But we need help, Lord. Our minds wander, our thoughts stray, and at times our feelings interfere with our concentration. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would guide us, counsel us, encourage us, and help us, Lord, to be diligent listeners and steadfast doers of your word. Father, by your sovereign grace and perfect will, you've seen fit to place us right in the middle of a trying time. We pray that we might face this test with the determination to be your representatives in this fallen world. But we need your help with that as well. Bless us with a full measure of your saving faith and generous compassion. We've sinned this week, Lord, each of us. Lord, grant us the gift of repentance that we might turn back towards you and be cleansed of the filth and burden of sin and be restored to a right relationship with you. We ask this gift of grace not because of anything we've done, but because of the sacrificial work your Son has done on the cross. Lord, lead us in that amazing grace and let our hearts be full of gratefulness for how you've rescued us from our own actions. We pray for those who are ill, those who are struggling, those who are grieving, those who are pouring themselves out for the sake of the gospel, and for those who are dry and being blown about by the ill winds of the times that we're in. Lord, be a blessing to all of them. Reveal yourself in a spectacular and regenerating way to them. Show us your glory and your love by how you invade their lives and have your way with each of them and each of us. Finally, Father, we pray for the souls of those who don't know you. Some of them may be beloved family members, and friends, or acquaintances. Lord, we ask that you snatch them from the hands of the enemy and make them living testimonies to your power and your love. Now, still our spirits. Sharpen our minds that we may honor you in how we come together and that we might be blessed in the hearing of your word. Amen. Amen. I'd like you to turn to the book of Luke. We're in chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 18 through 35. While you're turning there, Kelly and I were on our way to one of the big box home remodeling stores. They know us now. When we walk in, they go, hey, John, hey, Kelly, how you doing? You know, we got a special line that we check out in and a little piece of paper. We just kind of carry stuff out, and they bill us for it later. We just become good friends with all those people. And we were having a great afternoon, and we started singing a song from the 60s. How can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing? Now you know Kelly's a singer amongst us, not me. And, and Kelly remembered that a little bit before her time. God bless her. What a youngster. <laughs> but it was, it was a mark of our age. How can we be sure of anything? How can we be sure of anything today? How can we be sure of who Jesus Christ is and who we are in relation to him? Well, the passage today is going to give us the answers to those things. So, so far in Luke, we've seen Jesus Christ uh, deliver one of the world's greatest sermons, sermons on the plain. 
He's laid his foundation for his ministry, kind of made his presence known. Then he followed all that up with a series of signs and wonders, miracles, supernatural events. And all of those were designed to establish his power and his authority in the world we live in. So last week we found out how extensive that power and authority is. He has power and authority over sin and death, over space and time. It's complete. It's sovereign. This week, we're going to check in on John the Baptist. Remember him from the beginning of Luke? Okay, the forerunner. Uh, John is going through some troubles of his own at this particular point in the narrative. So, the title of our sermon today is a a little bit of a, a reflection of how can I be sure. It's, Are You the One? This is part 18 of God's Love for Everyone, our ongoing series in Luke. And the passage today can be bad news. Now let me talk to you about that for a second. I am getting so tired of listening to the news. It it is nothing but bad news. And people say, oh, listen to these guys over here, listen to these guys over here. And and all there is is contention and anger and paranoia and distrust And it's on all sides, brothers and sisters. As far as I can see, there are no more news outlets. Everybody wants to give me their opinion and why I should believe them. And and you know what? I have have some convictions. I, I have some ideas about what's going on. And I find myself gravitating towards people that feed into those convictions. But even when I allow that to happen, what they're telling me is, don't believe those guys, they're a bunch of liars and jerks. And then I I said, well, let me see what those guys are saying. So I'll go over there and they're saying, oh, don't believe those guys, they're a bunch of liars and jerks. So I'm I'm just getting tired of that. And I'm I'm about to say, you know what, I think I'm going to check out on the news. Because it's not news. It's, it's opinions, it's accusations, it's half-truths and outright lies. I'm ready. I'm ready for some good news. Aren't you? Aren't you ready for some good news? Wouldn't you like to hear some really good news? Well, today's passage has some bad news, but it also has some very good news, and it's all going to depend on, on what your perspective is, where you stand on the issue of the time, and we, you know, we can say the issue of the time is, is this or that or so on and so forth. The real issue of our time is where do you stand in relation to Jesus Christ? It's the issue of all eternity. It never goes away. It never changes. And we can get, we can get distracted and, and delayed by looking at other issues. The real issue is what happens when you die and stand before the Lord of all creation and his judgment seat. So for some of us, there's really good news in here. And I hope to be able to uncover it for you. And here's the thing that I want you to take away. You can know once and for all whether or not you're really saved. Don't we all ask ourselves that question from time to time? How can I be sure? Am I really saved? 
I mean, the enemy comes against us all the time. You know, if you were really saved, you wouldn't do that. If you were really saved, you wouldn't be thinking that. If you were really saved, you wouldn't have done what you just did. But I'm going to tell you right now, you can know whether or not you're really saved. So if you have that question running around in the back of your mind, listen up. So we've got, we got one question in this passage and two responses. We have the question, uh, which comes from John the Baptist, uh, towards Jesus Christ, and that's in verses 18 through 20. We have Jesus' response in verses 29 through, uh, 21 through 28, and the people's response in 29 through 35. So let's take a look at this question. Verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things. All these things. Oh, what things? Well, we've been reading about it. Uh, all of the, the teaching. Uh, the teaching with incredible authority, all of the miracles, the signs, and the wonders. And, and so John is in prison, and, and he's hearing about these things that Jesus is doing. And, and so John's response to that in 18, the second half of 18, 18b we call it, uh, it says, And John, verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Well, what is that about? I mean, this is John the Baptist. Jumping in the womb when Jesus shows up and uh, raised in bugs and coarse clothing and honey and that sort of thing. And, and so now, now John is saying, hey, what's, are you really the one? Well, he's in prison. We found that out in Luke 3. It also shows up in Matthew 12 with a bit more detail. And and maybe there's something behind this because John has been prophesying all along that judgment is coming. His message has been, repent, the kingdom of the Lord is near. And so everything John hears tells him that Jesus has this ministry of grace and mercy. So John might be wondering, uh, did I misunderstand something? You know, is, is this something other than the Messiah who's going to deliver us and bring judgment to the world? That may be the case. So he may be looking for some clarification. People were calling Jesus a prophet. We saw that in the last passage, verse 16 of chapter 7. So John may have been thinking, well, maybe he's just a prophet. But I don't think that's what's going on here because I, I think John has been through too much. He's seen too much. John saw the Spirit descend on Jesus when he was baptized. He, he, his proclamation was, oh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I think John knew, but I also think that John is thinking ahead a little bit here. He knows that he's in trouble. He knows that he may be executed. He has offended the king. So I think John wants his followers to know which way to go. I, I think he wants those who are going to follow him to hear who Jesus is directly from Jesus' mouth. So he sends these two guys to Jesus to say, are you the one? Verse 20, and when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? Now, I think Luke does a neat little thing here. He repeats the question verbatim. It's exactly as John said it. And so I think Luke wants us to see the question again. I think he wants us to consider it. 
I think he wants us to roll it around in our hearts and ask ourselves the same question. Is Jesus the one? So Luke's playing with a little literary license here. So he wants us to hear it. And he wants us to say, what have we read? What have we seen in the scriptures? Do we believe the things we see in the scriptures? It's probably the same thing that the two emissaries are thinking. Is he the one? I mean, they could very easily be going, well, I don't know, John's in jail. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Are we next? So they may be wondering whether or not everything that John said is true. And so there's the question. Are you the one? Are you the one? Is, is, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the, Messi- the, the, the Savior? Haven't, haven't we all asked ourselves that at one time or another? And there's a lot wrapped up in the question. There's a lot wrapped up in for John. Does John believe his own prophecy? Does he believe everything he's been doing? Now that he's in trouble, how deep is John's commitment? It's a valid question for the two emissaries. That they're about to lose their leader. Who do they follow? What do they do? How deep is their commitment to what John was teaching? And there's a lot wrapped up in it for us. Do I believe the scriptures? Is Luke a history book? Or is it just a bunch of ancient stories that happened 2,000 years ago? Do I believe the Bible? Do I believe all of it? Do I just believe parts of it? How deep, how deep is my commitment to what I've been taught? Where can we find the answers? Well, as always, the answers are in Christ and Christ alone. And we see that starting with the the next verse, Jesus' response. And and in his response, he's going to provide us three proofs that he's the one. Watch this. Verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. Now, the, the word here is excaristo, okay? It means to freely give. And, and it, the connotation is that he freely gives these, these healings of these diseases, these plagues, these evil spirits, and freely gives sight to the blind. It's a fulfillment of prophecies that we saw in Isaiah 29 and 35. And what we should learn from that is that 700 years before Jesus Christ arrived, Isaiah wrote of the moment that John the Baptist and the emissaries are experiencing right here, 700 years prior. And so as we understand that, we also understand why the Gospel of Luke, unlike the other Gospels, concentrates almost solely on those types of signs and wonders that Jesus does during his ministry. Uh, So the envoys are conveying this question to Jesus Christ and And they watch him. They ask the question. Jesus doesn't answer at the the beginning. He just goes to work. And uh, he begins to minister. And he heals those around him of, of diseases. And he casts out spirits. And he brings sight to the blind. So up to this point, they've heard the news about Jesus, the secondhand news. Now, Now they're watching. They see Jesus walk this out. He gives them an unspoken answer to their question. 
acts it out right in front of them, and they see what they see is a ministry of healing and grace. That's the first proof of whether or not Jesus is the one. He has this, this healing that flows from him, this grace that flows from him freely and supernaturally. Verse 22, and he answered them. Now, now he's going to speak it. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Again, we're talking about prophecies from Isaiah 61, 53, 29, 35. So he gives these, these messages a verbal answer. He says, tell John what you've seen. You've seen healings and deliverances and, and you've even seen resurrections. And every time Jesus performs a miracle, this is what he wants the emissaries to see. Every time he performs a miracle, he gives new life to the people he's performed the miracle on. It's not just about the healing. It's about a new start. Those who heal, he heals, he gain a new life. They are transformed. They're changed. The old is gone and the new has come in to take its place. So the second proof of who Jesus is, the second proof that Jesus is the one, is a transformation. It's new life. Now, verse 23 comes a third proof. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now the Greek word for offended here means literally to take offense, not just at something that he said, but at his character, at who he is. And to, to be so offended by his conduct that they reject him. So watch what, what he's doing here. Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not reject him. We need to think about this carefully. The third proof of who Jesus is is that those who belong to him do not reject him. This one's a little complex, but it means basically, simply, that those who accept him are blessed, and they're blessed beyond measure. And we all know folks that are offended by Jesus. We all know folks that, that when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about church, they get angry, and the thought or mention of Jesus Christ puts a scowl or some kind of smirk on their face. They deride him. They make jokes about him. They blaspheme him. They do everything to Jesus Christ but love him. The love of those who call him Savior is proof of who he is. Now, we could just let that hang there. Or we could show you what Scripture says about it. Because the love that we have for Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, if you love Jesus Christ today, it's proof that he's a Savior. Because, because that love is a supernatural love. It's not some feeling that we've conjured up. It's not some kind of affection that we go, oh, just such a great guy. It is a supernatural miracle. Now we know this. Follow me closely. Put this down in your notes. We know this because in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, 
It says, we love because he first loved us. Now, we're familiar with that, okay? But we need to understand what it says. We need to understand that it says that it is impossible for anyone to have any affection for the Lord unless the Lord loves them first. So there's a miracle right there, that God might love you or me long before we ever even noticed he was there. So, the love we have for God is supernatural. And watch this, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand, Paul says, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to call him Lord and mean it sincerely, we'll talk about what it means to mean sincerely later, without the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We can't say, Jesus is my Lord, without the Spirit inside us. Okay, well that's good too, but where's the assurance of my salvation, John? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, Paul's writing to the same group of people, we groan being being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit in us is the guarantee of our salvation. It's proof of it. So, we love God because he first loved us. We can't even profess that unless the Holy Spirit is in us. If the Holy Spirit is in us, we're saved. So Jesus isn't done yet. He turns and he speaks to the crowd. He's done with the emissaries. They're probably on their way. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Now, most people weren't sure what to make of John. He's living out in the desert. He's eating bugs. He's got a little bit of honey with him, and his clothes are not very nice. There were a lot of ideas floating around. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's Elijah. You know, a lot of claims, but his role, his role was not completely clear up until this moment. So Jesus begins by describing John's character. Who was he? What kind of guy was he? He's not a reed easily blown about to and fro by the winds of the times. He's he's neither ordinary nor spineless, nor is he wavering. People people traveled out to the desert to hear a man of conviction, not to ogle a wealthy man or not to be near a famous man. Now look, we can understand this because we live in an age where people are famous because they're famous. I mean, you've seen them. There's a 
what do you do? I take pictures of myself and I put them on, on the internet and, and I get millions of people looking at me. And I take pictures of my sisters too and then millions of people look at them. But what do you do? I, I, I take pictures of myself. We, we live in an age, I, I mean, things come at us so fast that people are famous for being famous. It's ridiculous. And these people are running around, they've got mansions all over the place and all these incredible cars and everything, and they don't do anything. Oh, wait a minute, I need to check and see what they're doing now. Look, they're eating bananas. I'm going to eat a banana. <laughs> so, Jesus says, you didn't go out to the desert to see that. You went out to the desert because this man had a message. And it was a message that drew you out there. So, that's what kind of guy that John the Baptist was. He was one who was so convinced of his message that he, he spoke it so powerfully and with such incredible conviction that thousands of people came to hear what he had to say. Then Jesus tells him who they went out to listen to. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. They went out to the wilderness to see a prophet. Everybody knew he was some kind of prophet, but he was that, and Jesus says, yeah, but there's a lot more going on here. Verse 27, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's the forerunner. That's straight out of Malachi 3.1. John was the forerunner to the Messiah. He would be, in, in the Jews' eyes, he would be the equal of Moses and Elijah and Elisha. He would stand among the greatest prophets that Israel ever had. As a matter of fact, John was the greatest man ever born. Look, at verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So he's telling the Jews, he's, he's more than Moses. He's more than Elijah. You're waiting for Moses and Elijah to show up. This is something a lot more than that. This is far more important than the reappearance of two prophets. But look at this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he? Wow, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here because we can draw some incorrect conclusions pretty quickly. He's not saying that John is not part of the kingdom. He's not excluding the Jews that have gone before from the kingdom of God. Now, Luke's not going to make that clear until we get to chapter 13. You can read ahead and see Luke's intention there. What Jesus is telling this crowd is that John represents an era that is coming to an end. And a new era is beginning. The kingdom of God has arrived on the earth. And everything changes starting right now in this moment. And those who occupy the new kingdom are blessed beyond measure, beyond anything that these people could imagine. So Jesus' words, they're a statement, but they're also a challenge. He's not just saying that John was a forerunner, and if you read this carefully, you'll see it. He's saying, John is a forerunner of the Messiah, and I'm, I'm the Messiah. He's saying, 
It's here. The moment you've been waiting for 2,000 years has arrived. John was here to tell you it was coming. And now that it's here, everything changes. Well, that's a challenge. It was quite a challenge for some of those people. How did they respond? Let's take a look at the people's response. Verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, I've said this before. We have to be careful when we read the word all. It doesn't always mean all. You would think it would be that simple. But right here, he's talking about those who heard, all the people who heard, and were baptized. Some folks heard John and obeyed the message by being baptized. Now, the the mix of folks who came closer to God is kind of surprising. Tax collectors. And he mentions, Luke mentions tax collectors here. Jesus mentions tax collectors, not because he's singling them out, because he wants people to be thinking sinners. That amongst the Jews, there were a few people that sinned greater than the tax collectors. They were defectors. They were taking advantage of their own people. So sinners came to be baptized with the baptism of John. So they heard the call to repent, and they repented. And in repenting and being baptized, they affirmed John's message. That They affirmed that God was just in requiring them to repent from their sins. In other words, they admitted, you know, they heard the message, they admitted they were sinners and did what John told them to do. They repented. So we have another group of people here. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him, by John. Now, we've got to be careful here because it's not the baptism that saved the sinners that repented and doomed the ones who didn't get baptized. It was the obedience to the message. It was the obedience to the message. It saved the ones who repented and doomed the ones who refused to do it. So now Jesus turns and begins to describe the generation of God's people who have rejected John's message. And so he says this, and, and to what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Now notice that there, there are two questions here. What do I compare them to? And what are they like? What, what, what kind of people are they? Verse 32, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now, there's some debate over who's who in this passage, in, in this verse right here. Um, here's my take on it. The children sitting in the marketplace that he's talking about are the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the ones who have rejected Jesus Christ. They are the Jewish leaders of the day that did not listen to John but wanted everybody to listen to them and their rules. You're not dancing the way that we want you to dance. You're not singing the songs we want you to sing. So instead of listening to the messenger of God, the leaders wanted the people to listen to them. Instead of them hearing God, they wanted God to listen to them. Now, I think there's a lesson in that for us. 
not one that would doom us, but one that might give us cause to pause just a minute and look at our relationship with God. Because I'm convinced that there are times in my life when I was more interested in God hearing what I was thinking than me hearing what God was thinking. We can go before him with this long list of things that we'd like him to do. Tack an amen on it, then tack an in Jesus' name on it and think that we've done something significant. But the real enrichment in our lives comes, the real nourishment comes when we get quiet and listen to God. He has things he wants to say to us. He had things he wanted to say to the Jewish leaders and they refused to listen. Moreover, they wanted the people to listen to them, not the messenger of God. Maybe they get a buy because they didn't believe he was a messenger, but Jesus Christ is standing in front of them saying, I'm the Messiah, and they're saying, no, you're not. You don't get in much more trouble than that in this world. <laughs> Some folks just won't listen to God. And Jesus makes this clear by what he says next in verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. So, and, and then he follows with this, verse 34, talks about John, and then he talks about himself. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So, Christ points out the folly of the leaders saying that John doesn't eat and drink like us, he has a demon, and then Christ comes along, and he eats and drinks just like they do, and they say, oh, he, he, he's not from God. So they can't have it both ways, but they want it both ways. Those who reject John and Christ commit the unpardonable sin. They not only reject the messenger of God, but they attribute the works of God to Satan. And the problem is that back in this time, that was the majority opinion. We need to think about that, brothers and sisters. Because in this day that we're all arguing with each other and there's so much misinformation and so much anger and hate out there, it would be easy to believe that when we make a statement that might be divisive or angry and get a lot of likes, thumb up, get a lot of little hearts. Oh, that's so right. That because we have a lot of people agreeing with us, we're right. That's not necessarily the case. We need to remember that the gospel is an offense to the world. This is, this is why I say, don't show me some book that claims to be Christian that's been number one on the New York Times bestseller list for 52 weeks. You don't get there by not having the world by the book and, and we hope somehow that because the book says Jesus in it that people are getting saved. And somebody, somebody told me just a couple weeks ago, one of the books that was popular, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, you know that book sold 50 million copies? What is God doing with that? I said, nothing. <laughs> You're telling me 50 million people came to the Lord because they bought this book? 
Well, no. So popularity is not a measure of holiness. It's not a measure of righteousness. As a matter of fact, it could be a warning that we might need to rethink ourselves a little bit. Verse 35 said, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And all he's saying here, again, this confusing passage, confusing verse here, but all Jesus is saying is that those who received John and Jesus have received the wisdom of God. And those who reject him are foolish. So we've had our question and our two responses. The question was, are you the one? And we have Jesus' response with his three proofs. And the first one is freely given healing and grace. The second one is transformed lives. And the third one is the love of Christ himself. Then we have the, the people's response. And some love him and others reject him. That doesn't surprise us. We know that that's how the world is. Some reject him, and, and you know the sad part about that is that those who reject him come judgment day. There's no in-between. There are no agnostics. There are either people who have received Christ as Lord and Savior or people who have not. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody go, it's not my God. He is. You'll find out sooner or later. Either you love God or you reject Him. So how can you know once and for all that you're saved? How can you be sure well, we saw these two groups of people. I mean, the same two groups of people are in the world today. Those who declare God just, those who believe him, and those who reject Jesus Christ, John, and the message of the gospel. And what do you notice about those two groups of people? Just think about it for a second. One group had been changed. One group had been transformed. The other has not. One group has new lives, has forgiveness for their sins. The other are left to their own devices. They're left on their own and the consequences of their own devices. You can know if you're saved. How can you know? Well, the answer was right there in the text. You can know that you're saved if you've been changed. If, if you are going through a change, then you're saved. If you're changed and are changing, you are saved. You are regenerated. You can know you're saved if you love the Lord. And you can only say, I love you, Lord, if the Spirit is in you. Now, you have to mean it. But what does that mean? Well, that will mean a number of different things to different people. Some of us are highly convicted by it. Some of us are highly convinced. Some of us, maybe not so much. Some of us are passionate about it. Not all of us are passionate about it. But if you mean it, if you utter those words, I love you, Lord, and there's something that happens inside you, your heart is rended just a little bit, and you're drawn a bit closer to God. If you're sitting there going, well, maybe I need to read my Bible more. Maybe I need to pray more. Maybe I need to get more active in the church. That's the Holy Spirit saying to you, Love the Lord this way. So if you love the Lord, you're saved. 
And the only way that can happen is if the Spirit is in you and the Spirit is your guarantee of salvation. It's incredible. So, do you love the Lord? Didn't we just sing this out in the parking lot? Stand up. You people in the parking lot, stand up. Come on, stand up. It's okay. There's no, no restrictions against standing up. And we're going to sing this song. It's short. But I want you to examine what's happening in your heart as you sing it. Because that move in your heart is the move of the Holy Spirit drawing you unto the Father and assuring you of your salvation. If you're at home, stand up. Sing with me. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh my soul. Rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear, let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Did you feel it? Did you feel the Spirit stirring in you? That's a guarantee of your salvation. Bow your heads and let's pray. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In his name we pray, amen.